finished fraud. <laughs> Is anybody ever really finished with fraud? I doubt it. But on the podcast, Walking with Dante, we are finished with this most human sin fraud. It has taken up a great deal of time in this podcast, 87 episodes in total. This is episode 189 of the podcast, Walking with Dante. We're going to be one more on Fraud 190, and we started into the eighth circle of hell. Get this, at episode 104, from 104 to 190, 87 complete episodes. How's that possible? If you are listening to this in real time, we set forth into the eighth circle of hell on the 24th of October of 2021. Almost a full year in one circle of hell, a giant circle that extends all the way from Inferno, Canto 18, line one, all the way back to 31 line six, the largest piece of real estate anywhere in comedy. Before we get started, I should say, hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. You know this podcast. We slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. And in this episode of the podcast, I would like to do a plot overview of the eighth circle of hell. This is going to be a little strange because we're just going to go through what happened, where we were, and how we got through this giant circle of hell. I'm going to read you some passages as we go along, some extremely important passages to understanding fraud. There's not going to be any specific passage for this. Rather, consider this a plot overview for where we came. And then in the next episode of Walking with Dante, I want to talk about some of the implications and interpretive cruxes of this giant landscape of fraud. Remember, 10 evil pouches, each pouch full of different kind of fraudster until we get toward the end. And then at the very end, where in fact, we have multiple sorts of fraudsters in the 10th pouch and well, oh, I should say in the first pouch too. So the first and the 10th pouch have multiple types of fraudsters, otherwise essentially a single type of fraudster in each of the evil pockets of fraud. Let's get started. Let's first recall the geography of where we are. We came down a giant cliff on the back of Garion, the beast of fraud, the beast on which Dante swore by his comedy that he really did see the beast of fraud. Remember that? So far, so long ago, one of my favorite moments. Two things that are so great there. You just proved yourself a fraudster because you swore on your own book that you really saw the beast of fraud. I mean, it can't get much more meta literary than that. And secondly, you got pretty blasphemous because really the only book you can swear on is Holy Scripture. But you swore on your own work as if it were of an equivalency with Holy Scripture. You swore on that, that you saw the beast of fraud. 
<laughs> so insane. Medievals were, God, I mean, listen, they were just right up with the postmoderns. These postmodern authors like Philip Roth and the rest, they got nothing on Dante, to be honest with you. So that's where the architecture was. We came down over this cliff. There was a waterfall. Gary and flew them down. They landed into this circle that is extremely rocky with pits. Those pits, 10 of them, as I already said, have bridges that oh, go over the top of them, mostly. Later on in this circle of fraud, we find that these must be gigantic bridges because some of these pits are a half a mile across. Verrazano Narrows kind of bridges. Bridges from Denmark to Malmo, Sweden. Giant kinds of bridges that exist here over these pits. They seem smaller, but half a mile. That's a pretty big stretch there you got going on. Okay, so, and we've been coming down over these bridges, staring down into these pits. We talked about it referencing a medieval zoo where animals were kept down in pits. We talked about it as broken terrain. We talked about it as geological terrain. The innards of the earth, the bones of the earth, form the mechanical notion of fraud. We'll talk much more about that in the next episode of this podcast and what that all means for us. So let's just go down each of the pouches and review them. Pouch number one. That happened in Canto 18, lines 1 through 99, and in it there were two kinds of fraudsters. There were the panderers, the people who pimped out women, so we would say mostly the men who pimped out women, especially in Dante's day. Not saying that a woman can't be a pimp, but you know what I mean. In Dante's medieval day, mostly men who pimped out women and the seducers. And in that pit, we saw Venedico Caccianamico of Bologna, and we also saw the famous Jason of the Argonauts. They were walking in opposite directions, being whipped by demons, by black demons. It was our first glimpse of real old school demons was here in the first of the evil pouches, the Malabolja of fraud. Virgil is the one who spots Jason from the bridge and Virgil remarks on his nobility, the way that he seems to overcome the very torments of hell itself. And one of the things that we noted that was so interesting about this first evil pouch is the opening of the 18th canto seems almost to restart comedy. It opens up with the lines, there is a place in hell called Malabolja. And that reference, that opening bit, seems to almost restart comedy as if we've come down over this cliff on Garion's back, we've gotten off his back, and now at the 18th canto, it's kind of open anew. Or we might say that the end of the 17th canto, to use completely modern terminology, is the end of the first act of a play. The curtains come down, and now the curtain seems to be going back up again. There is a place in hell called Malabolja, called the evil pouches, the bad pouches, the bad pockets. Here, we have two sets of fraudsters in the same pit. The second evil pouch 
takes place over the course of Canto 18, lines 100 through 136. And this is the only place in which there are two pouches in one canto. Interesting that that's how it starts. So we at first think that the Malabolja, the Sins of Fraud, are going to move pretty quickly. Bang, 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 bang. More than one per canto. We might think that Dante is either setting us up or he himself thinks he might be moving faster than ultimately he moves. Here in this pit, we find the Flatterers. They are sunk in excrement. There's a huge interpretive question about whether it's actual human excrement or some spiritual representation of human excrement because there's a weirdly conditional or subjunctive verb sitting down there to describe the excrement. So is it actually excrement or does it just look like excrement if you recall i believe it actually is excrement in this pit we meet alessio interminei of luca and we also meet tyus the one of the great flatterers from mythology this is the first time we get a notion that these pits are also going to be a tour of Italy, of central Italy, because Venedico Caccianamico came from Bologna, and now we have a figure from Luca. Dante himself recognizes Alessio in this pit, and Virgil seems to encourage the gawking. He seems to stop Dante on the bridge. He encourages Dante to stare at the flatterers and see who else is down there. The reason this is interesting is if you remember later in the Malabolja, Virgil seems to discourage gawking. So it's interesting that it starts out with Virgil wanting Dante to gawk, and then later that's going to change a bit. Is there some change in the notion of how the pilgrim looks? Is there some change in the motivation of the pilgrim? None of that is terribly clear from the text, but what is clear is that we have two evil pouches in one canto, canto 18. On to the third evil pouch. This one takes up most of Canto 19 from line 1 to 132, and it is full of the Simoniacs, people who bought and sold church offices, people who said, hey, give me a little coin and I'll make you a bishop, or I'll make your son a bishop, or give me a little coin and I'll get your daughter in the right nunnery, people who buy and sell both the offices and also, I should add, the sacraments to those offices. So people who say, for example, "Eh, give me a little coin and I'll let you take the Eucharist anyway. It's all a transactional world as is so much of fraud. In this pit, we found Pope Nicholas III already damned here. It's the first time we kind of shockingly saw a pope. We did see a pope up with the heretics, and we may have seen a pope up with the neutrals if you accept that the one who made the great refusal is Pope Celestine V. You know, if you listen to this podcast, 
I don't think so. You know, I think that's Pontius Pilate, not Pope Celestine V. Nonetheless, this is the first time we kind of shockingly see a pope because while we pass a pope with the heretics, it's just the tomb of a pope. This is the first time we kind of sit down and talk to a pope, Pope Nicholas III, who is upside down in a hole, stuck in a hole upside down with his head down into the rock and flames dancing on his feet. And we find out that more popes will be added to this pit, that he will be shoved farther and farther down into the rock as future popes land on top of him. We know some of those future popes coming are Popes Boniface VIII, who he actually thinks has already arrived, but instead it's the Pilgrim Dante, and then Pope Clement V. This is the first time Dante and Virgil descend into a pouch. Virgil carries the pilgrim Dante down into the evil pouch and back up, but Virgil remains largely silent in the third evil pouch. Instead, Dante the pilgrim is the lead figure, descends into the pouch, being carried by Virgil, and then stands in front of Nicholas III like a father confessor to hear Nicholas III's confession. If this isn't approaching blasphemy for a Roman Christian, I don't know what is. In this passage, Dante rebukes Emperor Constantine and the interesting thing about this big rebuke about Constantine allegedly giving the Western Empire to the church, we now know that that's an, a, a false statement, that that's based on a forged document. But the interesting thing about that is so much of it is carried out by Dante in an apocalyptic denunciation. Dante uses all kinds of wild imagery taken out of the apocalypse of St. John, or as the Protestants call it, the revelation of St. John in the New Testament. He pulls this imagery together to condemn the church and ultimately to condemn Constantine for giving so much power to the church. And interestingly, Dante refers to his own apocalyptic denunciation as a song. He says, while I sang all of this to Nicholas III, that's at Canto 19, lines 106 through 117, that's where the denunciation happens, and it's while I sang it. So as if this is some kind of poetic, apocalyptic, deeply metaphorical song, we should just think right there that Dante is speaking the traditional language of the New Testament and some of the Old Testament or Tanakh prophets, including Zechariah and Daniel, in order to condemn the church's corruption. Dante is putting himself into the tradition of singing sacred-like text. If the popes are blasphemous for selling church offices, <laughs> the poet gets pretty close to being blasphemous by so loosely and freely using language drawn out of the apocalyptic tradition inside the Bible. On to the fourth pit. 
This is our first rather long overlapping pit. It actually starts at the end of Canto 19 at line 133, and it carries on until the end of Canto 20, line 130. We have one line hangover in this case. So it's the first time, though, we don't have a really even break in the cantos inside the Malabolgia. These are the fortune tellers, and there are crowds of them. Amphiaraeus, Teresius, Irons, Manto, Euripolis, Michael Scott, Guido Bonatti, Astente, and a whole crowd of peasant women fortune tellers. They're all walking around with their heads turned backwards so that their tears go down their backs and, as it says into the text, into their butts. We talked about this, that there's a translation problem here. It's unclear whether they're walking with body forward and head back, which is how most commentators read it, or are they walking with head forward and body back, which means they're walking backwards. It's a little unclear. You can play with the text in a lot of different ways. The most important thing here to note is that Dante the Pilgrim cries. This is the first passionate response from Dante the Pilgrim. We linked that perhaps to poetry because fortune tellers, particularly at the classical age, end up being so literary. They themselves are poets, especially in the classical age. Virgil rebukes the pilgrim for his tears and then retells the story of Manto, thereby contradicting the story of the founding of Mantua in the Aeneid and the story of Manto. This is also one of the few places where Virgil offers a temporal marker, Cain with his thorns, the moon, and where the moon is in the sky. It's interesting that fortune tellers use astrological signs so much in their practice, and here Virgil uses astrological signs not just to predict the future, but to tell the time. One of the things that's most interesting about this fourth pit is that the opening lines of Canto 20. It actually names the canto as Canto 20. The first time we see a canto named with a number, and it also refers to the damned as the submerged, and we haven't seen that in a long time, that kind of reference to the damned as somehow the submerged. Virgil's rebuke of the pilgrim here for crying is quite stern. Virgil basically says at lines 29 through 30 of Canto 20, who is more impious than the guy who thinks that God brings any emotion to his judgments? So in other words, how dare you cry at the fate of these fortune tellers? This is a complicated canto, one of the most complicated, and it's complicated because of Virgil reprimanding the pilgrim. It's also complicated because the canto itself seems to be self-referential, maybe even self-aware since it numbers itself, and because inside of all of this, Virgil retells a story and in fact dares us to doubt his retelling, says if you ever hear this story of the founding of Mantua in any other way, you'll know it's wrong because I'm telling you the right story. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the only other place we would hear that story of the founding of Mantua by Manto is in Virgil's own work. <laughs> We're back to those fraud problems, which seem to plague the text at every turn. But we're pushing on to the fifth of the evil pouches. This is truly a long section. It lasts all the way from Canto 21, line 1, all the way out through the end of Canto 22 at line 151. And this is the sequence with the barators. The fifth evil pouch are for those who sell political office or political favors. We see two distinct damned figures here. A demon brings down an unnamed elder of Luca. The commentators identify this person as Martino Botario, but in the text, it's just an unnamed elder of Luca. And so we are continuing in our tour of central Italy. We've had Bologna in the first pit. We've had Luca in the second pit. Maybe if you talk about the popes, we've had Rome in the third pit. In the fourth pit, we had Mantua. And now in the fifth pit, we're back at Luca again with this unnamed elder who's brought down by a demon and thrown into the pitch. The first time somebody isn't necessarily thrown over the edge by Minos or is he? How, why does this demon seem to have somebody and say, I'm going to go back up for somebody else? Did they bypass Minos or does Minos use these demons in some way? Not clarified in the text. Most of this pit, the fifth evil pouch, is taken up with an unnamed Navarrese citizen. Most of the commentators name him Ciampolo, but again, he is unnamed in the text and he is himself uh, caught in this boiling pitch. He rises up, the demons grab him, pull him up. He promises to make others come. He lies, he tricks them, he jumps back in. This is the first time we could say that Dante seems to be in some kind of real danger. Virgil hides Dante here from these demons. The demons walking around whipping the panderers and seducers didn't seem to be as malevolent as the these are because after all Virgil feels the need to hide Dante here we've had other moments where Dante may have been in danger let's say riding on the back of the centaurs or when Garion appears Dante seems to pull back just a little hiding the pilgrim seems to indicate that there is a true danger involved in Dante's safety in this pit. The problem with Virgil is that he does seem to trust the demons. He believes their lies about where the next bridge over the next, the sixth evil pouch will be. What we'll find out is all the bridges are down in that pit. This is the second time in the Pit of the Barretters that comedy names itself. The name of the work is given as comedy. This is the second time that has happened in Inferno. So we are in no doubt as to the name of this. And it's interesting that the name occurs in the same place we encounter the Malabranca, the, this army of demons that descend on Virgil, Dante, 
and all of the damned in this pit. The most interesting bits here are the giant similes. There is a giant simile about the Venetian arsenale and building ships with pitch in Canto 21, lines 7 through 15, a gorgeous simile. And then in Canto 22, lines 1 through 9, there's another giant opening simile about military maneuvers all about flatulence and how that you've never seen any army move with such a trumpet call as has happened with these demons who seem to have <laughs> who seem to fart out the call to move forward though both of those similes are quite elaborate and it's one of the first times that we are treated to such elaborate similes which will become more and more prevalent the farther down in fraud we get we have to ask a question here and this is an interpretive question is dante introducing the similes halfway down the sins of fraud because that's intentional or is he as a poet becoming more comfortable and he is developing this notion of the extended long simile that will slowly begin to dominate the eighth circle of hell it's 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 not really answerable you can you can come down in either way this is one of those cases where i think it's better to keep the options open. Sixth pit ahead of us. That takes place in the 23rd canto. It is in fully encased in it, the 23rd canto from lines 1 through 148, and it is the sixth pit of the hypocrites. We meet two figures from Bologna, Catalano and Lodoringo. We also meet Caiaphas, the high priest who sent Jesus to his crucifixion. We hear that Caiaphas's father-in-law, Annas, or Annas in American English, Annas, is also down in this pit, but we don't see him. Caiaphas is stretched out in a crucifixion-like design pattern on the floor, and the hypocrites walk over him. They are walking around the circle, walking, walking, walking around the circle in gilded but leaden robes. Remember, the robes are made of lead, but they have a gilding on the outside that makes them look like gold. And we're told that they're the monkish robes that resemble the ones worn at Cluny. This is the first time truly since Ferranata that Dante the Pilgrim has been identified by his Tuscan speech. These hypocrites seem to recognize that Dante the Pilgrim is a Tuscan. Dante starts another prophetic denunciation, which starts off sounding like what happened with the Simoniacs, the people who sold church offices, but he stops at the site of Caiaphas, and it is a truncated or broken denunciation. In this pit of the hypocrites, interestingly, people who say one thing and mean another, this is the pit in which Virgil reads Dante's mind. Virgil reads Dante's mind that he is afraid that the demons from the Baraders are going to get them. They're going to come after them because they have escaped 
slyly slipped away from those demons. Dante the Pilgrim is right. They go flying down into the bottom of the sixth pit to get away from them. Interesting that here in a pit about hypocrisy, Virgil is able to clearly make out Dante's thoughts. It's also here that Virgil marvels at Caiaphas. We don't exactly know why that is. It could be that Caiaphas was not there the last time Virgil was down on a journey to hell. It could be for other reasons, maybe why we talked about this in the episodes on this, that Caiaphas was close to the truth, that he said things that resemble the truth without recognizing what he was saying, which sounds a lot like Virgil. This is also the pit where Virgil storms off mad because the hypocrites school him about the nature of the devil. When Virgil discovers that the bridges are down, the hypocrites say, oh, (laughs) you know, those are devils. It told you that. And I always heard that the devil was the father of lies. This little dig at Virgil makes him furious and he storms off. The hypocrisy is also the first pit where doubling seems to become a major thematic. We start out with a frog and mouse metaphor simile that begins it. We have Dante and Virgil definitely as a dyad in this pit. We have the two friars. We have the two sides of their capes, golden lead. This is the first time that doubling seems really absolutely important to the thematics of what's going on. And of course, they're hypocrites. So doubling does seem to fit. The seventh pit was the Pit of the Thieves, and it is a long stretch from Canto 24, line 1, all the way through Canto 26, line 12. We meet a passel of thieves. Vani Fucci from Pistoia. So we've had Bologna, Luca, Mantua, back to Luca, back to Bologna with Catalano and Lodoringo, and now on to Pistoia with Vani Fucci. Vani Fucci is the first of our thieves. He himself incinerates and reconstitutes on the spot. And then we meet a series of five thieves who we are told come from Florence, Cianfa, Agnello, Puccio, Buoso, and an unnamed figure who is perhaps named by the commentators as Francesco. These are all figures who we meet who undergo, well, except for one of them, Puccio remains unchanged, four of them undergo metamorphoses with snakes and lizards. As I said, Vani Fucci burns up and reconstitutes. Cianfa and Agnello fuse into one thing. Francesco perhaps as a serpent, perhaps it's Francesco, swaps places with Buoso as a man and the serpent becomes the man and the man becomes the serpent and Puccio runs off unchanged. This whole canto mostly silences Virgil. Dante himself is not silent. He boasts that he can outdo Ovid and Lucan in Canto 25, lines 94 through 99, and he lambasts Florence as a den of thieves. This is also the place in which a centaur appears, Caucus appears, 
Pat is largely missing from the action. He runs up and then runs off after Vanifucci does his vulgar hand gesture toward God. Interestingly, too, this is also a pit that begins at Canto 24, line 1 through 15, with that gorgeous opening simile of a peasant who walks outside, sees the hoarfrost, is disconsolate, thinks winter's still not over, goes back inside, takes a little rest, comes back up, the day has brightened up completely, and it suddenly realizes spring is indeed here. It's a gorgeous opening simile to the Pit of the Thieves. I would argue better poetry even than the metamorphoses of the thieves, but that all stands before the great eighth of the evil pouches. Another long section that lasts from Canto 26, line 13, all the way through Canto 27, line 132, almost at the back of Canto 27. And these are all the false counselors. Here we encounter Ulysses and Diomedes, although Diomedes doesn't say a word, and Guido de Montefeltro, two huge soliloquies perhaps twinned soliloquies. The false counselors are held inside tongues of fire. Dante the Pilgrim is silenced when Ulysses comes up by Virgil, but he is allowed to speak to Guido de Montefeltro because, after all, that one's Italian, as Virgil so says. Virgil speaks to Ulysses. We wonder how Virgil speaks to Ulysses in Greek. But what is interesting here is that Guido recognizes that Virgil is speaking in the Lombard dialect. Two extremely complicated and lengthy soliloquies, one from Ulysses about sailing off toward Mount Purgatory, the other about Guido thinking he has gotten out of his sins by taking church office and then being snatched by a demon right at his death. This also has a beautiful opening simile at Canto 26 lines 25 through 30 in which a peasant sees the fireflies come out at night. Notice that the thieves had a peasant at the metamorphic moment from winter to spring and then the false counselors have a has a peasant at the height of summer with the fireflies out that can't be a mistake that has to be a unifying device that dante is using to pull this poetry together we should also remember that guido's speech includes the passage that has become famous as the epigraph of T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, that whole bit at 28, line 61 through 66, about if I thought anybody could ever get back up into the world to tell this story, I'd remain silent. But since you can't, I'm going to tell you my whole story itself. Two overwhelming speeches. We spent a lot of time on these soliloquies from both Guido and Ulysses. Much more can be said of those two soliloquies. Dissertations could be written about the interplay between the two speakers in the eighth of the evil pouches. Ahead lies the ninth evil pouch. It lasts from the very last line of Canto 27, line 133, 
all the way through Canto 29, line 36. It spills and breaks the Canto boundaries dramatically. It is the ninth pit of the schismatics, those who divided either the religious community or the body politic. In this pit, we found Muhammad. We found his brother-in-law, Ali. We heard about Fra Dolcino. Muhammad warned him about a coming judgment. We saw Pierre da Medicina. We watched Pierre de Medicina try to get Curio, the Roman, to speak by opening his mouth. We saw Mosca de Lamberti, and at the end, well, toward the end, we saw Bertrand de Bourne walking along, holding his head, and then there was yet one more schismatic bleeding over into Canto 29, and that is Dante's relative Jerry de Bello. So a full pit, full of figures. They're all cloven into pieces by an unseen demon with a sword. They walk around the pit with their disemboweled or beheaded or torn apart bodies, which are slowly rehealed in the pit until the demon does it all again. And apparently they do this circling and this cutting and this rehealing for eternity. Here, Dante gapes and gawks and then stares into the pit, apparently looking for his relative, Jerry DeBello. Virgil rebukes Dante for staring. Dante seems to give it right back to Virgil. Well, if you only knew why I was staring, you'd just let me do it. Looking for my relative. Most interesting here amongst the schismatics is the first and only use of the term contrapasso to explain the punishments of the damned. We talked endlessly about this, but isn't it interesting that in the pit of the schismatics, we have the term contrapasso that unifies almost <laughs> all of comedy. Isn't that just too precious and too, what do I want to say, coincidental <laughs> to actually be a coincidence here in this bit in which we see people dividing up everything into pieces. We learn the term that basically explains everything, even all the way up to Paradiso, Contrapasso, even though no one's suffering up in paradise. This bit with the schismatics opens with a giant passage on the ravages of war in Canto 27 lines 1 through 21, a giant bit about what war does and how war takes out its savagery on the body. The debt of history is the body in pain. And finally, the tenth evil pouch, which starts at Canto 29 all the way out to Canto 31, line 6. Huge pit. This is the falsifiers. This is the most crowded pit of speakers we see in Amongst the Fraudsters. We have four distinct types of falsifiers. Alchemists, impersonators, counterfeiters, and grandiose liars in court. Not people who just tell white lies, but grandiose liars who tell lies in front of a royal 
court. These centers include a man from Arezzo. That's our last stop on our tour of the towns of central Italy. This may be Griffolino, according to the commentators, or may not. We certainly hear a man named Capocchio, both of whom, this Arezzo man and Capocchio, are the alchemists. We see Gianni Schicchi and a classical figure, Mira, who are the impersonators. Gianni Schicchi, because he tried to impersonate someone to get them out of their will or to get himself written into their will, I should say. And Mira, because she impersonated someone in order to sleep with her own father. We see Master Adam. Maybe this is a reference to the Casentino. He certainly talks about the Casentino as this verdant, watery place in central Italy. And maybe, really, that's our last stop in the tour of central Italy is the Casentino. But we see Master Adam. He's a counterfeiter. And then we see two of the grandiose liars, Potiphar's wife, who accused Joseph in the Old Testament, and Sinon, the Greek, who convinced the Trojans to open the doors to the wooden horse. This entire pit is a contagion hospital. It reeks. It's repulsive. It stinks. There are bodies decaying. We have various diseases leprosy for the alchemists we have rabies for the impersonators we have dropsy for the counterfeiters and we have a very high fever for the grandiose liars what the medievals would call a fever of the blood dante the pilgrim is repulsed he gawks he stares he seems to promise safety to the man from arezzo if he identifies the rabid souls johnny skiki and mira which is interesting can dante the pilgrim promise safety i suppose the poet writing the poem can offer safety because if i if I, Dante, am making this up, I can keep you safe from anything that happens inside my own poem. Dante the Pilgrim falls silent during the insult match between Master Adam and Sinon that closes out this episode. And interestingly, also, this is Virgil's longest silence to date in the poem. He is somewhat missing from much of the action of this pit. He rebukes Dante for staring at the schismatics when we open out toward this pit, and then he seriously rebukes Dante at the end, the strongest rebuke so far given to Dante in comedy. I'm going to have a tiff with you if you keep on staring at those idiots, Master Adam and Sinon. There is a great deal of low comedy terror and revulsion all commingled in this pit. We get a lengthy self-justifying soliloquy from Master Adam in which he is mewling and contemptible and contemptuous, a hateful and hate-filled and hateable man. And then we have an insult match between Master Adam and Sinon, as I said, right before Virgil re-enters the poem with the strongest rebuke to Dante yet. It rivals that moment up at the top when Dante started the journey and said, I'm not Aeneas, I'm not Paul, who am I to do this? But that wasn't really a strong rebuke, more the story of how Virgil got to be here with Dante. This is just an outright slap. Stop staring at 
the idiots. There is a giant, and it's an almost simile. It's not quite actually a simile. And it's a double whammy about Juno and simile and Athamas and Hecuba, about Thebes and Troy. It falls right in the middle of the falsifiers at the beginning of Canto 30, lines 1 through 27. It is by far the most elaborate opening of any canto that we have so far encountered in comedy, and it may tell us something about the developing poetics of Dante's masterwork, comedy. There you go. The entire plot summary of everything from panderers and seducers to flatterers, simoniacs, fortune tellers, baroners, hypocrites, thieves, false counselors, schismatics, and falsifiers. So much doubling, so much intentionality, so much can't be just coincidence inside this giant landscape of fraud. Next time, we want to talk about some of the interpretive and thematic problems with fraud. We want to talk about what does all this mean and what can it tell us about Dante's poetics. So subscribe to this podcast. Come back next time. We won't just be rehashing the plot. We'll instead be talking a little bit about what it means. And I'll be posing some questions to you. Again, more discussion questions about what, in fact, does all this mean? Can there be much more fun than this? I just don't hardly think so. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. I'll see you back for the last and final episode on fraud. Fraud.